0: You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Well, good morning, Radiant Church. Hey, if you are new with us, again, thank you for making Radiant a part of your weekend. My name is Marco. I'm the lead pastor here at Radiant. Before we get into our message I want to highlight and celebrate um, something really, really cool with our kids' ministry here at Radiant. So most of you know that we've been in the middle of this Heart for the House campaign. We're raising money for uh, a new roof and uh, several other projects here in our local body, and our kids' ministry have participated as well, and they've been in a series themselves entitled Be Generous, where they're learning about God's generosity towards us and how we can extend that generosity towards others, including our church. And so they have done all kinds of projects and whatnot, and they have raised money themselves to give towards the kingdom of God, and I am so proud to say that they have raised (laughs) $306.45. isn't that awesome isn't that amazing you guys so so, uh, we love our kids and i just love our teachers for encouraging generosity and we're so grateful of course for sarah Schaefer and her leadership of the kids ministry but it's so cool that our kids are, are getting involved in this as well and learning what it means to live with an open hand at a young age and so i just wanted to highlight that for you this morning how God is working in the midst of our kids' ministry here at Radio. Well, today we are in part number seven of our sermon series entitled Kingdom Manifesto. Hey, we're almost done, you guys. Next week, it's over last week of our series, but this is part number seven, and this is a series on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter five. They are the beginning of Jesus' sermon on the mount and what we discover from these beatitudes is that they are incredibly countercultural and counterintuitive. In fact, Jesus's vision for blessing is entirely different from the world's vision of a blessing. And we see that this sermon actually was designed for believers, but Matthew tells us, well, we'll see this in a few more moments, but Matthew tells us that the crowds had gathered around Jesus. I mean, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of people that have gathered to hear Jesus' sermon. And that tells us this, that tells us that Jesus was calling believers and non-believers to decision alike. lie. Both of them, he was calling to make a decision. And so this morning, we're going to dive right into our text We're gonna start in Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna invite you to grab your Bible your smartphone. If you don't have that with you, go ahead, you'll see the verses behind me. We're gonna look at the first nine verses in Matthew chapter nine. By this time, you guys probably got it memorized, all right? But we're gonna camp out in verse number nine because that's our beatitude for the day. You'll find out what that is in just a second. But here's what the text tells us. Matthew five, beginning in verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. We looked at that last week. For they will see God. And then finally today, the beatitude for today. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Or literally sons of God. We could say sons and daughters of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. God, let's take a few moments. I like to pray every time we open up God's word, so let's do that right now. God in heaven, we love you, and we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. God, it just pierces through a sinew through ligaments, and God, as we read your word, it reads us. It it knows our motives. It knows our heart. It, It knows the deep things of us, and God, there's nothing to hide in your presence. And so, God, this morning we, we ask simply that you might use your word to just uncover, unveil, convict, challenge, change, edify, encourage, God, and make us into your image even, even greater, God, that we go from glory to glory according to what Scripture says, God. And that today, God, that we might leave changed, that we might become more like Jesus. That's, that's the point after all. And so, God, use your word for that this morning. And finally, God, would you just give us the courage to obey? This is a particularly difficult beatitude to live out. And we need your courage. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us. And so we receive your word this morning, God. Open our hearts, open our eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, did you know that war is one of the constants constants in human history. War is a constant in human civilization. In fact, war has not diminished with the rise of civilization and with the rise of democracy. It's been, again, one of the constants that we see in our world. In fact, there's a a famous writer and, and historian by the name of William Durant. And William Durant, comes to the conclusion. He says this, he says that in the last three thousand four hundred and twenty-one years of recorded history, that only two hundred and sixty-eight of those years has not seen war. Isn't that crazy? Over three thousand two hundred and forty one four hundred and twenty one years, I mean only 268 of those years have not seen war or conflict. I mean, it's like we've been, we've been fighting since day one, right? There has been bloodshed all the way back. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, rebellion. We re- rebelled against God, so then we were at war with God, and then we were at war with one another. And then Genesis chapter 4, what happens? The first murder is recorded. We've been in conflict ever since I mean, think about even right now. Even right now, there is conflict everywhere. In fact, if you just do a Google search of conflict or war, there will be so many you won't even be able to count them all. But there's just a few that come to mind right now. I don't know if you if you know this or follow this. I, I follow this because my wife and I were in Israel, so we kind of follow the news out there through YouTube just a bit more closely because we just have a heart for Israel. But right now, um, the tension between Israel and Iran. I mean, it's, it's, it's reaching a boiling point. And just this past couple of days ago, Hezbollah to the north launched over more rockets. And, I mean, it's, the, the tension is increasing. It's getting pretty bad. Not to mention there's a civil war in Syria that you've probably heard of, and it's absolutely ravaging this country. And then we have, uh, think about the drug war taking place in Mexico, where it takes thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives. And it's not necessarily a war. Most of those deaths are through murder, the drug cartels. But thousands and thousands and thousands of people have lost their lives because of the violence that we see through the drug war. We've been in the middle of conflict ever since Genesis chapter 3. And this is why the heart of the message of Christianity is a message of peace. It's peace between us and God and peace between one another. Peace is the message, the central message of the gospel. Now, here's what I want to do before we get in, or before we go any further. I want to define this term peacemaker, and and the way that I want to do this is by actually taking a closer look at the first word, which is, of course, peace, right? So, go ahead and throw that next slide of course, this word is the word shalom in the Hebrew. Now, actually, we know that the New Testament was written in Greek, okay? So that word is actually arene. Arene is the Greek word for peace. But the idea is, is that this word is rooted in its Old Testament context, in its Hebrew meaning, which, of course, is shalom. And shalom is translated in many places in the Bible as peace. But I want to share with you that peace is, is a bit of a one-dimensional definition of the word shalom. Actually, the word uh, shalom means more like peace, wholeness, well-being, completeness, and prosperity. In fact, and there are portions in the Bible where actually the word welfare or the word prosperity is actually the same word shalom in the Old Testament. And so what a peacemaker is, a peacemaker is someone who is seeking what? Completeness, well-being, wholeness in all of their relationships. That there, that there be wholeness, that there be completeness, that there be nothing lacking between us and the other party, that that would be whole, integrous, right? That is the meaning of a peacemaker, someone who is seeking out wholeness, the, rest- the, rest- the restoration of well-being in all of their relationships. Now, just in case you're thinking about this, I want to make clear that a peacemaker is not someone who is just not who is just passive and non-judgmental. Okay, that's a, that's not a peacemaker. Because you might think in your head, well, okay, so a peacemaker is probably that guy who doesn't want to be involved in any conflict, who is afraid of all conflict. Hey, no, it's okay. Just live and let live right. Hey, you just do you, boo-boo, and it's okay. I mean, I I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved in your conflict. I'm just going to sit over here. You guys can fight. I'm not involved in that. That is not a peacemaker. A peacemaker actually is someone who has to effectively deal with conflict, okay? A peacemaker is not someone who is afraid of conflict, and he's not, or she's not someone who is afraid of making waves. That would be the world's definition of what peace is because the world would say that peace is simply the lack of hostility or the absence of hostility but the bible rooted this this word shalom would actually mean well-being and prosperity and completeness and wholeness there's a whole nother layer to this word in fact one theologian says that the word shalom means universal flourishing what does that mean it means flourishing between us and god there's flourishing between us right? All of us, one another, and there's flourishing between us and creation. Universal flourishing. A peacemaker is not someone who simply says, hey, you know, I'm not going to get involved. I'm I'm just going to be passive. No, 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 right? A peacemaker instead is this. It's one who speaks the truth in love with humility in order to pursue reconciliation okay here it is again. one more time a peacemaker is one who speaks the truth we believe the word is truth by the way the truth in love with humility we always have to do it humbly in order to pursue reconciliation okay that is what a peacemaker does the end goal for people is for people to be reconciled to one another and reconciled to God, right? Paul himself says that Jesus has left us with the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul writes in Corinthians. Now, some of you remember that during week one, I talked about this idea that the further you go into the Beatitudes, the more difficult they become, okay? The more difficult they become to what? To obey and to live out. Why? Because they build off one another. Now, we are in week seven. Now, truly, this is actually the climax of the Beatitudes because next week's Beatitude is actually not an action that we partake in. It's actually something that happens to us. We're on the receiving end. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You see, up to now, it's been every beatitude has been something that we do. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? All of these things. Blessed are the, the peacemakers. But next week is something that we're on the receiving end. So truly, a peacemaker is really at the height or the climax of these Beatitudes. Ah, I, can, I just want to be honest. I think it's the toughest Beatitude to obey and to live out. I'm going to explain that in just a few moments. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He was the greatest preacher in the 1800s. I would argue one of the greatest preachers of the 1800s. Uh, he writes this about the Beatitudes, and specifically about this Beatitude. He says, I have said that the Beatitudes rise but it would be quite as correct to say that they descend. For from the human point of view, they do so, bless you, to mourn is a step below and yet above being poor in spirit. And the peacemaker, notice what he says about the peacemaker, while the highest form of Christian will find himself often called upon to take the lowest place for the sake of peace. What is Charles Spurgeon saying here? Well, first he's saying this, that the peacemaker is the highest form of Christian. And I never realized that. I want to I just confess to you that I have not taken seriously the Beatitudes ever in my life up until now. I've simply read them and then sort of kept going. But over this series, God has really convicted me, gotten a hold of my heart. These are severe. These are intense. The point of Spurgeon, the point he's trying to make is this, is that the further we get into the Beatitudes, the more we must humble ourselves. The more we must die to selfishness. The more more we must die to greed. The more we must set our pride aside in order to what? To obey God. And this peacemaker is the, I I would say, it's one the most difficult i'll just say it that way the most difficult why is that well why is that why then is peacemaking so difficult marco well because peacemakers must effectively effectively deal with conflict and i've never met anyone who likes to deal with conflict i've never met one person who says oh joy i want to go settle this argument yay that's me yay that person hates my guts i'm going to go talk to him oh i can't wait I've never met anyone like that. My guess is you're not like that. I'm not like that. But a person who makes peace must effectively deal with conflict. I I want you to think about the last conflict you had. Maybe it was uh, yesterday. Maybe if you're married, it was on the way to church, right? (laughs) You were yelling at one another, but you came through those doors. Bless the Lord. How you doing? God bless you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing good, brother. (laughs) ha. Fake smile, fake laugh, in the car. You're like, don't you dare say that again to me, right? Think about the last. Con- <laughs> you're laughing because you've experienced this. That's why, right? Come on, someone. The last conflict you had maybe was with your spouse, maybe it was with a coworker, um, maybe it was somebody at church, right? That that happens quite often, actually. Think about this. How did you respond to that conflict, right? How did you respond to that conflict? Because the answer to that question is the reason why this beatitude is so difficult for many of us, for most of us, right? There are two primary ways that we respond to conflict, okay? The first one is this. We respond to conflict this way. Actually, wait, back up. Hold on. I almost missed my my first line. Here's what I've discovered about conflict, and I'm sure you have too. And it's this we don't naturally make peace, we naturally hold a grudge. Okay. We don't naturally make peace, we naturally hold a grudge. We don't say, hey, I want to go ahead and just solve this problem. And I know that we're kind of mad at each other. And I know he's upset because this and his pride, my pride, blah, 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 blah. What let's go make peace. No, no, no. We don't naturally make peace because of our fallen nature. We naturally hold a grudge. Right? That's, what we, that's just what we do. This is the reason why it's so difficult to deal with conflict. Most of us find it extremely uncomfortable and, if we're honest, awkward. When we feel hurt by someone, we respond in one of two ways. And here it is. The first one is this. Avoidance. Avoidance. We avoid the person and we avoid the problem. Hey, have you talked to him about that thing, that that, that thing is on your heart? No, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I'm just going to, well, you see him at work, yeah, but I'm going to avoid him. I'm not going to, I don't want to be around him now. So you're going to just avoid him for the rest of your life? Yeah, I'm just going to avoid him for the rest of my life, yeah. So you're never going to come back to church? No, I'm never coming back to church. Just want to avoid that. I want to avoid him, and I want to avoid that pastor guy, and I want to avoid those ushers that always say hi to me in the morning for crying out loud, and just want to avoid everybody, just, right? We're so uncomfortable, listen, with conflict that we would rather avoid than deal with it, right? Let's face it, we're all guilty of this, right? We're all guilty of this. Avoidance, that's the first way that we deal with conflict. The second way that we deal with conflict is this, accusation, accusation. When we feel like we've been sinned against we go into a situation and we are quick to blame other people. We are quick to point the finger, oh, but you said that, oh, but you did this, oh, but you, you didn't say that, you did it for her, you didn't do it for me, and we are slow to point the finger at ourselves, right? And so we go into it and we have a harsh tone and we lack we lack humility. We're full of pride. In fact, we cannot see our own faults. We're quick to point out the faults of another person, but we're not quick to point out our own faults or to own up to our own faults, which may have caused the conflict in the first place. So what do we do? We accuse you, you, you. you. No, not, not me. No, not, I didn't do anything, right? But you Avoidance and accusation are the two primary ways we respond to conflict. And Jesus tells us this. He says, there's a third way, and it's a better way. And here it is. Blessed are the peacemakers, or they would be called children of God, sons, daughters of God. So why peacemaking? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Jesus call us to peace, to make peace? Like, why is this a beatitude? This is so difficult, right? It's so awkward. It's so uncomfortable to deal with with tension, to deal with offense, because offense will come. Jesus says that himself. It will come, but it's so hard. Why is this a beatitude? Have you ever thought about that? Here's why I think it's a beatitude, because peace is rooted in our God. He's a God of peace, okay? And we serve the Prince of Peace, let me show you this, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Here's what Jesus, Paul writes this, but notice what Jesus does here. It says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He's talking about Jesus, then him is Jesus, right? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. By what? By making peace. Underline that in your Bible, highlight it in your UA, um, YouVersion app by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Who's who's making peace here? It's not a hard answer. It starts with a J. Jesus, you got it. All right, good. If you said Joseph, I was going to be like, whoa. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus is the one making peace. Let's, Let's see how he does this. Verse 21, 22. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now Jesus has reconciled you, or God, I'm sorry, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says this. He's essentially saying that the human race has turned their back on God, but, but thank you that God has not turned his back on the human race. That God sent his son to what? To die in our place. Paul says it earlier, here earlier, right? He says that we were alienated. In other words, we were enemies of God. Did you know that you were an enemy of God before Jesus? And, and if you're here right now and you're, you're, you're not a Christian, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but I have to just be honest with you. You're an enemy of God. You're under God's wrath. That's what is coming your way if you don't repent. I know that's not politically correct to say, but I don't care because that's what the scripture says, right? We were enemies of God, far off from him, alienated. Who comes to make peace? Jesus makes peace. By how? Through his death by giving his life. And so now what happens? Now there's peace with God, right? Now we're reconciled to the Father. We have peace with God. No longer are we, do we have to be afraid of God. No longer are, are, are we outside of the family. No, we're brought in and we're made family. Now we're sons and we're daughters of the King. Jesus is the one who makes peace for us. Look at Romans 5 verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified... Through faith, we have peace with God. There it is, the, the idea again. We have peace with God. It's good news, man. It's so good. That is really, really good news. We have peace with God, but notice what the next word is. It's a preposition, through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it means that Jesus Christ is the vehicle by which we have peace with God. We didn't make peace on our, on our own. We, 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 we were unable to do that. Jesus makes peace for us, therefore we have peace with God. Jesus has become our peacemaker, and through his sacrifice, we are, what? We're adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters, and now we follow in Jesus' footsteps. I think that's why this beatitude is here, because God is trying to say, listen, I was the first peacemaker by sending Jesus to make peace on my behalf because you were once my enemies, you, you had fallen, you were sinful, you had rebelled, humanity had rebelled. I think that's why this shows up here. So what did we learn from these passages? Well, we learned this. Jesus is our peacemaker, right? Obviously. Well, what else did we discover, though? We discovered this. Peacemaking is costly. It costs Jesus' very life peacemaking is costly. It costs Jesus his very life. It it might cost you your pride. It might cost you your comfort. It might be a bigger cost. There there might be a greater cost. I'm not sure, but peacemaking is costly. It costs Jesus his very life. In other words, it won't be easy. Rarely is peacemaking easy. Rarely is the problem solved in like five seconds, and we can all just go, you know, sarah, sarah, whatever, whatever, do our own thing. It's often difficult. It's often uncomfortable. It's often painful, honestly. What's at stake here? Why pay any attention to this beatitude? We've already acknowledged the the discomfort that we feel from trying to make peace, right? What's at stake? I I think this is at stake. I, I think the church is at stake here. Right? The church is at stake. Why? Because conflict causes division, and a divided church is a defeated church, right? Conflict causes division, a divided church is a defeated church, and, and, and let me just say this humbly, in so many cases, I don't think the church is any better than the world at peacemaking. I wish I could say that, but in so many ways, I don't think it's the case. We should be better because we know Jesus, but I don't think we are better. The future of the church is at stake, right? Even our world, we talked about war. But what happens, Marco, if peace is unattainable? I think that's the next question we should answer, right? What happens if I try to go and I'm trying to work out peace, but it just doesn't happen? Well, that's a great question. I want to answer that right now because I think there are two possible scenarios here, okay? The first scenario is this. Let's say that you go to the other party and you want to make peace, um, but the other party simply will not participate. They won't talk to you. They won't return your phone calls. You try to reach out through Facebook Messenger you even in on uh, Instagram Messenger, whatever it is, I don't even know, right, you're trying to get a hold of them, you sent a messenger pigeon to their home, and they won't respond to the pigeon, right, whatever it is, and they just simply will not respond, they've cut you off, they, they're ignoring you, and you're like, I'm trying to make peace, and here's what I want to say to you this morning, if that's the case, that you've run into, I want you to understand that we cannot control the way that people respond to us, okay? Amen? In fact, I'm going to just say this. You're not accountable for other people's actions, but you are accountable for your actions, right? You're not accountable for the way that someone responds to you or for the actions that someone else, you know, takes upon you, but you are responsible for your actions. And so therefore, you cannot walk around with a guilty conscience if You've done everything in your power to make peace, and it simply still hasn't happened. Now, the second scenario is a little different. The second scenario is this. What if, um, what if you're standing for righteousness? What if it's an issue at work? And can I just tell you, this is going to happen more and more and more in our increasingly secular and progressive culture. This is going to happen to many of us unfortunately, where we stand for righteousness, where we stand for the truth, where we do what we believe is the right thing according to scripture, and then what happens because of that? It brings animosity and hatred from other people. What if you're, you're saying to yourself, okay, listen, I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to obey God. I'm trying to abide in his word. And, and yet there's animosity towards me, Marco. And yet people hate me. Does that mean I need to compromise my faith? Does that mean I need to, um, you know, sort of do something that would compromise my integrity? And, and the answer is no. The answer is no. Let me, let me read something to you. It's Romans 12, 18. Paul says this, he says this, if it is possible, if it is possible, right, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. In other words, we must must love peace and and we must work for peace and we must pray for our enemies and we must try to do good to them even though it it hurts us. We must seek peace and we must pray for, for all the barriers To be removed between us and the other party, but we we must never do so at the expense of our faith. We must never do so at the expense of our faith. We should never abandon our allegiance to Christ and His Word, okay? Even if it garners hatred from other people. Because here's the idea. Especially in our culture today, like I said, increasingly secular, progressive culture that we live in. You are not wrong if you're doing, here's what you're going to discover, you're going to do what is right, you're going to abide in the truth, and what will happen is that you will have hatred from some people, and you will have affirmation from others. Hatred from one group of people, affirmation from others. Does that mean I have to appease everyone? No, it doesn't. It does not. It doesn't mean you should try to say, okay, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to be on your side now. I'm going to believe what you believe. I'm going to wave your flag now. That's not what it means, right? It means that you will have affirmation and hatred, right? That's what the word says. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus actually addresses this. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. And this is, the topic is peace here, but it's interesting. The context is what you need to know here. Notice what Jesus says. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. You're like, wait a second, weren't we just talking about that? There's context, though. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He says this. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What does that mean? That means this. Sometimes when you stand for truth, you'll receive hatred and animosity even within your own household. It's going to separate brothers. It's going to separate father from a son, a mother from a daughter. Right? Jesus says, listen, there will be times where you're going to be hated And the people who will hate you will be your own family members. And that's just the case. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. You continue to follow Jesus and not appease other people, right? So there are times where even when we stand for truth, it will bring animosity and hatred from others, including those in our own family. Finally, I want to say this. <clears throat> Let me say this about this beatitude. Jesus is not telling us how to become a son or a daughter of God. Jesus is telling us what sons and daughters are known for. Jesus is saying, listen, sons and daughters of the king are known for peacemaking, and that's what we should be known for. If, if you want to become a child of God, if you're here this morning, I want to invite you to do that For if you're not a, a Christian yet this morning. Um, you want to become a son or daughter of God. I want to show you how that does happen. John 1.12 says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to, all, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? That means this, if you receive him, if you believe in him, what does believe mean? Believe means trust. It means faith. Paul says something very similar in Galatians 3.26. He says this, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Through faith. It's the vehicle by which we become a child of God. How do you become a child of God? Faith in Jesus Christ. What does faith in Jesus Christ mean? It simply means this. It means trusting Him above yourself. Trusting Jesus. It means this. It means stop trusting in your ability to be a good person. Stop trusting in, in your own ability to save yourself and begin trusting in the work of Christ that was already done for you at the cross of Calvary, the cross that we celebrated this morning while we took communion together as a church. Stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in Jesus. What does it mean to trust well, think about your marriage or think about your friendships. When you trust someone, what, is, what do you do? You open up your life to them. And you say, here's my heart. Here's my everything. And so if you trust Jesus, it means, God, here's, here's my all. Here's my heart. Here's my life. Here's my relationships. Here's my sexuality. Here's, here's what I believe about this. Here's, here's my, my work relationships. Here's my church life. Here's my ethics. Here's everything. God, here's all of me. Why? Because you trust them. That's what you do with people who you trust. That's what God is asking for you to do this morning. And listen, as a child of God, we're called to peace. We're called to make peace. As difficult as that might be, as awkward as that might be, as uncomfortable as that might be, we're called to be peacemakers in the middle of a culture of war. In the middle of a society full of conflict, we're called to be peacemakers. Until when? Until, until the day that the Prince of Peace returns. And Isaiah records this, that he will bend our swords into plowshares. And then, then, and then there will be peace. Forevermore, no more war, no more bloodshed, no more accusation, no more pointing the finger, no more hatred, no more racism, no more hate, no more murder, no more violence. The Prince of Peace will finally be here. But until then, we're called to be peacemakers. And may we bring peace to our churches, to our communities. Schools, places where we work. So, help us, God. Let's pray. God, we um, just thank you for this message this morning, and we just realize that this is this is impossible. <laughs> um, this is impossible. This is difficult unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit. This simply will not happen, God. Most of us avoid. Most of us run away from conflict. Most of us would would rather just say, I don't want to see him for the rest of my life. I'm never going to see her again. I'm never coming back. I don't want to deal with it. Most of us are more comfortable with just avoiding it. God, but I pray that you might um, just fill us with your Holy Spirit. Most of us are more comfortable with accusing other people, God. That comes naturally. We'd rather hold a grudge than make peace. And so, Holy Spirit, we call upon your power this morning. And may, God, may we bring the shalom of God into our churches. May we bring shalom into the places where we work. And and may we bring shalom into our schools. God, may we bring the, the shalom of God into our communities but the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, God, we know that there will be times when we'll bring peace or we'll attempt to bring peace and we'll be hated. And there'll be animosity, God. And in that time, would you allow us to stand strong? Would you give us courage, God, in the middle of a culture that is against our faith, God, in so many ways? Give us the courage we'll need to stand in that day, God. Until the Prince of Peace returns and rules and reigns, and he bends our swords into plowshares, and the peace of God will rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day, God, so help us to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name.